Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel, and I'm talking today with Anna Weltman author of Supermath, The Power of Numbers for Good and Evil, published this year, 2020, by Johns Hopkins University Press. This is an extraordinary work of popular mathematics that explores several deservedly high-profile and, I think, some undeservedly low-profile societal questions on which mathematics has been brought to bear. While its plain language and conversational style keep it accessible to young readers, It will challenge even many mathematicians' basic assumptions about the discipline. And I'm looking very forward to talking through some of them with the author. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for being here. Could you begin by saying a bit about your own mathematical background, training, and experience? Yeah, so my, I would say most of my experience in mathematics is in how people think and feel about math. Um, I have an extensive background in teaching, especially teaching young children math. I worked as a math teacher in private and public schools for a number of years, and now I am finishing up a PhD program in math education, um, looking at how um, math teachers think about what their students are doing in math class. Um, So so I also have um, undergraduate experience in mathematics, and I've done some work with people since then, but I, I attempted a math master's program, and I hated it. I just, I'm a person who hates math class. I do not like math class. Um, and that is, I think, mostly what motivated me to become a math teacher, because I wanted to change that experience for kids. And I, I discovered through my years, you know, taking math classes and teaching them, that a lot of the, the feelings that people have about math come from the way it's presented to people and the relationship between math and power and everyday people who maybe don't do a lot of math in their daily lives and then develop negative feelings about it. So that is, I would say that's one of my missions is to help disrupt those um, power dynamics that lead people to feel like they don't have a lot of say in what's going on in the world and in mathematics. Um, So yeah, so that's, I think most of my experience is in um, sort of like helping people think differently about math and then making sense of how they feel about it as a result of how math is in the world. Yeah, well, that certainly bears out um, or comes across well in the text, and we'll get into several examples of that. Um, 
And one of the traditional questions of the New Books Network is to ask, whom is the book intended for? What readership do you have in mind? Um, you set the tone very effectively in, in your introduction, where you interrogate an idea we often take for granted, that mathematics is about problem solving. And because it's such a great primer for the deeper topics you get to in later chapters, I was hoping you could explain what you see as the disconnect between how this view is held by practicing mathematicians and how it comes across to students in the classroom. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I would say, um, as a math teacher, one of the questions you most often get um, that you know isn't like, oh, did I get this answer right? But <laughs> the question you most often get is, when am I ever going to use this? Now, this is a really troubling question if you're a math teacher because you're in a classroom with kids and they're using math right now. So I think what that question really gets to is um, for me as a teacher and as a person who really wants people to love math and see how it is extremely useful and used everywhere is, is what is it about how we're teaching math that's making kids not feel like they're using it when they are using it, right? I, I think, I mean, there is a tendency to see school as a preparation for something in the future, which I think is a really like impoverished view of school because these are kids' lives and they're living them right now. Um, and they should be doing in school things that feel valuable to them um, right now and that they see as valuable um, for the future. Um, and, and when we do math in school, we're doing, we're doing math with kids that's real. It's real math. It's not some sort of like fake substitute math that isn't, you know, the actual math that they'll get to later, right? There is more math that they'll learn in the future, but this is math right now. So it's something about how we're teaching kids that's making it feel like when they're doing math, they are not actually using it. And I think some of this comes about because of how we present problems to kids. So when you're in school, um, the orientation is often, there's often an attempt made to manufacture a problem to entice kids into practicing particular techniques that they had no say in developing or in using. Um, so famously, there's the, the two trains problem, right? Where you're like, oh no, two trains are leaving from two different stations and they're headed towards each other. And oh no, they're on the same track, they're gonna crash, right? And then you're like, oh no, are they gonna crash? You have to calculate when they have to stop or something like that, right? This doesn't feel like a problem. Um, if, you're, if you're a kid or even if you're an adult and you hear this problem, um, you probably think to yourself, well, why would I even care about this? This is not real, it doesn't matter to me. Um, why don't these two trains just like figure this out before they left? Um, but in mathematics, you the the it's a it's a different perspective, right? You have a problem that you feel needs solving, and you pick up or develop techniques along the way to solve it. So you're not the the emphasis is not on practicing a technique to solve a manufacture problem, right? You have an actual problem, and then the techniques that you use come out in the process of solving it. Um, so you can see why mathematicians might love doing this and kids might hate it, right? Because they don't see any purpose in what they're doing. Whereas for mathematicians, this is their whole life, right? This is their life's purpose. Um, some lucky students get to experience math as if they're solving problems that matter to them. And I think these are often the people who become mathematicians and who end up loving the subject. Um, so, but I think there is a real disconnect between what mathematicians do and how students experience sort of a, a very bad shadow of what they do. No, that's an interesting additional point that in addition to considering that we want children to be able to learn mathematics and to be able to make use of it no matter what trajectory their lives take, we also are preparing next generations and making sure that they are motivated by, by real problems in the world instead of sequestered into a sort of range of problems that have been defined for them is also important, even if the same number of, of kids go on to become mathematicians. Yeah, and I think in addition to that, you want we want children's lives to be fulfilling for them as they are right now. And we read well, I think what you're hinting at there is that we don't know what the future is going to look like in terms of problems or in terms of math. Math changes all the time. If the math that people, research mathematicians are doing now is very different from the math that they were doing 50 years ago. 
And if you if you were to say that any training you got in elementary and high school in the 1970s was supposed to prepare you for exactly what's going on right now, that would not be true, right? You have to be you have to love the subject and be willing to learn and develop more in order to do it. So we want, I think, you know, not everyone's going to become a mathematician. And of course, that's not, we wouldn't want that for everyone. We want people to pursue whatever loves and passions and, you know, needs to fill the world that they want. Um, but I think, but, you know, we have, I think we have an obligation to students to, to have their lives in school be meaningful and especially their lives with math, right? Because math is such a powerful subject and it does touch so many problems that we face in the world, even those that may on the surface seem like they're not related to math. And so on the, on the subject of this real world notion of good and evil, um, it, should, it shouldn't have surprised me that a book with the title Good and Evil would be complicated. Um, and I wanted to ask a question about the cover design before getting into the content. When people come across the book, they'll see a comic book noir kind of image. Uh, but rather than a conventional hero-villain dichotomy, what you have on the cover looked to me like stylized mathy versions of Superman and Batman. And so I can't help but think this was meant to anticipate some of the subtleties, the ethical subtleties that you raise in the book. And I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, I think this is like the genius of the advertising department. I didn't have, they, no one was like, hey, do you like this cover design? They just like, you know, they picked it, but I love it. Um, I think we, when we were talking about the title, when you write a book, you have a lot of conversations with like the marketing department about what your title is going to be. It wasn't entirely my choice, but we were we were going back and forth about how the the title and whatever goes on the cover has to really show that there are two sides to math, right? And they're all tangled up with each other around the issue of power. And math, math does a whole lot of good and it does amazing and wonderful things for the world, but it also does a, a significant amount of damage. And if that's unexamined, then we can't you know, continue to have math be the powerful force for good that we would want it to be. So I think that really does come through on the cover. I think it's real cute. I love it. I agree. That's, it is very <laughs> cute. Okay, so jumping into chapter one, mathematics is often described casually as the universal language. And in fact, we take this idea seriously enough to have based some pretty expensive and high profile outreach, if you want to call it outreach efforts on it. And you can get into that a bit maybe in your answer. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure I've said this myself as a, as a student of pure mathematics, not necessarily because I used math to communicate anything but math itself, but because the math I'd seen always looked more or less the same. It's, it's symbolism and it's, it's core under, undergirding concepts. I wouldn't have known how to begin questioning the idea of math as universal language. And your first chapter does an amazing job of complicating it. So first, could you introduce us to the idea and how it became so entrenched, a story that I was at, not at all uh, familiar with? Yeah. So just to say about your outreach efforts, I think that's a funny way of putting it. Just in the book, I'll give a brief, just a brief summary of it. Um, that, um, people are so, um, taken with the idea that math might be the universal language that, um, like NASA funded and National Science Foundation funded programs are sending messages to potential, um, extraterrestrial pen pals that are basically like coded math. Um, so I, I, I came across this code that I shared in the book, um, while I was a math teacher, I was teaching third grade and I used to give this code to my third graders to try to translate. It's been, it just looks like a bunch of random pixel pictures, but, um, well, I'm not, I guess I, this is a spoiler alert. It's actually a bunch of, um, like binary and base 10, um, and tally style arithmetic, um, just coded into pixel pictures that I guess, um, people hope that aliens might be able to pick up. Um, so, so I think when, when people were thinking about, well, if there are aliens out there and we want to talk to them, what will we talk to them about? Um, a lot of people have landed on math 
as being the best thing to send because of the thought that math might be the thing that is that has the least amount of human cultures like fingerprints on it. Um, and so and that and that possibly aliens whose lives and bodies and just everything are just so unimaginably different from us um, that they for somehow might understand this as well. Um, so yeah, this is a really common idea. And I think I think it's been said, I mean, it's, it's said all the time, especially when you're a math teacher, you think about people, people are always saying, well, teaching math is a really good way to reach lots of different people because math might be the universal language. Um, and I think, I think this idea comes from some sort of like confused um, next step conclusion from, from the idea, the like very, very like confirmed in human history idea that math might be the language of the universe. So there's, you know, two phrases here. We have math is the language of the universe and math is the universal language. When we say math is the language of the universe, I think we're talking about the idea that when we when we bring math to bear in making sense of natural phenomena, rather like, you know, how is the universe expanding or shrinking, or what is the makeup of life? How do molecules come together and atoms structure to form life? Um, math has been very powerful for us when we try to understand the natural world. And this is confirmed throughout history, right? And just you know, people are often like very surprised and, and mathematicians are flattered when mathematical theories that they developed seemingly disconnected from the studies of physics or the, you know, the natural world, they show up in these new physics ideas. And I think this makes us feel confirmed in the sense that there might be some sort of structure underlying the universe and that structure might be math. Um, and this, this is sort of like an article of faith for a lot of people. And I think it, it gives people a lot of comfort in their scientific pursuits. Um, even though, you know, throughout time, we found when we bring different mathematical tools to bear, we see different things about the universe. Um, and some of them turn out to be true to a certain extent. And then we develop new tools and we learn new things and learn how they were not true. I think like the story of physics is a really good case of this, of how, you know, the math that we have lets us see certain things. And then we develop new math and then we see new things and make us question the things we thought before. Um, but so, but math, math has throughout time been a very useful tool for understanding the natural world. And it's led to the conclusion that maybe math is the language of the universe, right? The universe is speaking to us through math. Um, and then sort of like a, a, a not so logical next step would be to think that, okay, if, if math is showing us a lot about the natural world, then that means that the math that we're doing right now is the same as the math that we were doing in the past and is the same as the math that everyone has always been doing all the time, right? Which would be the idea, be idea behind the thought that math is the universal language. And if we just look into our own history, we see that this is simply not true. Um, and one example that I have in the book of this is in mathematicians' attempts to translate this little tiny clay tablet that was dug up from, you know, ancient Middle East um, called Plimpton 322, which I first saw in a museum. And I, I really encourage people, if, you, if this thing comes to town, you should get a good look at it. Um, it's a it's an ancient tablet that's written in ancient script on it, um, and it has some math in there, but mathematicians are not in agreement on what that math is, right? We can, we can translate the numbers that are on it. We can see that it has a table structure, um, we, we, and we can see what those numbers are and their relationships to each other, but mathematicians don't agree on what exactly the math is that people were doing in this tablet, right? And I think this is a great example of how the math that we know now um, is not necessarily the math that people were doing back then. They were thinking about problems in different ways. Um, and so when we say that math is the universal language, we, we are covering up some of the, the developments that we've made over time and different ways that different people in different times were thinking about the same problems and using math in different ways um, to, to you know, try to address them. 
Um, so then I would also like to add that I think we can't conflate, if I'm saying math might not be the universal language, that, that this is a conclusion you should not draw from this is that that not everybody can learn math, right? Everyone, math can be different in different places and in different times. And, and, and the math that we have now can be not necessarily a universal thing. And we can still think that everyone is capable of learning math, right? J- just because something is a cultural artifact doesn't mean that everyone is not capable of understanding it. Um, so, and, th- and this is really important to me because I teach children and I think a lot of the time we look at certain children and we think, oh, these people are not capable of learning math. And that's not true. Everyone is. Um, and, and children are brilliant and they say amazing things about math, no matter what you show them. So I like the distinction you made between math as the universal language and math as a, a universal of the world. How did you, what was the phrase you used? Um, math is the language of the universe. The language of the universe. <laughs> yeah. which mm-hmm. I, I, I've felt this before and I've wondered if this is a little bit of an extrapolation from the idea that math is the language of modeling. And what we understand of the universe is always filtered through our model, our sort of our conceptual or um, computational models of it. Um, I don't want to go down that route, um, but I did want to ask for a little bit more on the development or the the, the 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 genesis of this idea of math as universal language from the link from a linguistic perspective. You mention um, an actual contrived language in the first chapter that tries to. Have such a develop on such a firm logical basis that everything written in the language has a concrete, permanent meaning. Yeah, so I think you're, you're referring to this language called Linkos, yes. um, which was developed by a mathematician and math educator named Hans Freudenthal. Um, so I, I I come from at this from a, a background in math education, and Hans Freudenthal is a real like phenomenon in that field. He 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 pioneered an approach to mathematics education called um, realistic math education, which is um, really aims at getting kids in touch with real math problems um, and applied mathematics and, and, you know, getting them worked, not with the problems I called like contrived situations, but real math problems. So he's a real, he's like a real hero in math education. Um, and, and I think his work there is really great, but this Linko stuff, I think strikes me as a little bit out there, but um, what he, what he tried to do was, to develop a language, like a real language you would use to communicate like all the things you talk about, right? Not just like number problems, but also like feelings um, and tastes and things like things that are very subjective that you would not on at first glance think math is capable of communicating about. But he, he tried to build a math vocabulary with grammar and, and sentence structure and, and, you know, words with fixed meanings um, that, would, that would communicate all of this stuff. Um, and, and he was motivated to build this language called Linkos by the idea of trying to communicate with aliens, right? To, to think, and I can't get the exact quote, but he, was, he said something like, um, the messages we send into space should not have the character of a newsreel, right? So we wouldn't send the front page of the New York Times into space for aliens to read because they probably couldn't make heads or tails out of any of the, you know, conflicts that are eating us up on Earth. Um, but if we sent them something that was written in math and that allowed them through a series of mathematically derived logical statements to figure out all the things we mean, right, starting with things that he thought didn't have the character of, of a newsreel, like statements about prime numbers, um, and then working our way towards um, the more like effective and aesthetically derived um, subjective things that we try to say. Um, so, and, you know, Hans Freudenthal was not he, he's, he wasn't a crazy person, right? This was like a totally normal thing for someone to do. He's a very well-respected mathematician and math educator. Um, and, and Linkos is not the only time people have tried to do this. Um, but yeah, so I think when, yeah, when we say math is a universal language, I think we, we often very literally mean that we're communicating things 
um, about ma- about ourselves through math. And I think I think we we are right. So so if math is a language, then it is deeply cultural, and it's used to communicate the things that we that we care about, right? And the things that we care about as people come from the the histories that we have, the conflicts that we've had, the problems we've tried to solve. Um, and and so I think I think that you know when we say math is a universal language, I think what a lot of people mean is that it isn't communicating things that are cultural and unique and historical about us. But I think we actually are um, because any language, any language has a the meanings that we have, like if you try to learn a foreign language, a language you've never spoken before, there are lots of things you can't just, you know, pick up a dictionary and start reading it, right? There are, there are meanings that people have developed through their communications over time that you have to spend a lot of time embedded in that culture who speaks that language fluently in order to learn. And I think math is the same way. And you get into the importance of the history of what, um, of the culture, what a language is intended and designed to communicate in the final account, you give three separate accounts of, of um, from an anthropological or a uh, cultural, cross-cultural perspective that challenge this idea of math as universal language. And the third I found I was most swept up, swept up by um, of descent, how descendants of European colonists interpreted certain Incan documents. Now, as I read it, this is a story of how our mathematical training, which is to say our culture, can itself limit our ability to understand communications from other cultures. So could you talk a bit about that um, story, that miscommunication, and how it's been somewhat, uh, not necessarily resolved, but improved upon recently? Yeah, so I think that's an interesting reading. I think I'll start, I'll start by like sort of telling a rough sketch of that story. Um, it's a really sad story. Um, it's just, I, it, was, it was a story that like sort of most affected me while I was learning about it for this book um, and writing it. Um, so. So the um, the Incan Empire was a, a, a large and very well-developed um, empire that didn't have a very long life um, in South America because um, the because Spanish conquistadors came through and and sort of deposed the government there and killed a lot of people and then sort of systematically went through and, and started wiping out um, Incan culture, um, especially artifacts that they could find. And one, one a type of artifact that was very prevalent in, in the Incan Empire, um, were these um, tangled up bits of string that look to us sort of like nonsense now if we look at them, but were, were full of significant meaning for the Inca, and they're called kipu. Um, so kipu are, if you sort of hold them up, um, they they look like, sometimes people display them sort of like a necklace almost, where there's like a, a central cord that um, from which dangle um, individual strings that are knotted in, in sort of like compelling and enticing patterns. Um, and these were, these were, very common across the Incan Empire, but when the Spanish came through and were, you know, trying to dom- dominate this culture that they were taking over, they uh, burned a lot of kipu. I think they they called them um, like artifacts of the devil. Um, so so kipu were were like largely wiped out from Incan culture. A lot of them were taken away to Europe and put in museums and put on display. Um, and the Incan people, even though kipu were widely used in the Incan Empire, Incan descendants for the most part, don't know how to read them now. So I think just like sitting, stopping and, th- and thinking about that fact, that um, that a, a conquering force could come through and so effectively destroy a, a, a culture that a, a document that is was so common in the past could now not be read at all by descendants. It's just sort of like an amazing thing to sit with, right? Like if you just think about what, what would happen, what would have to happen to us that we would, 
in a hundred years not know how to read any of the books that were written, right? And then maybe we only have like a hundred of them left. Um, I think that's just like a very effective, it's like something to sit and think about. Um, but so, so the, these kipu, um, they were, they were around, some of them were left and people didn't know what they were, but a lot of people found the patterns in them to be very enticing and to sort of maybe possibly be a form of language. Um, so, so, you know, fast forward a couple hundred years from the Spanish conquest, um, European mathematicians and, um, anthropologists were trying to translate the, these like couple of kipu that they had on hand, maybe in museums, um, and a mathematician named, um, um, L. Leland Locke. Um, thought that he maybe had um, come up with a way to translate them. And for what he, he, he was a mathematician, so he had formal mathematical training. He looked at these kipu and the patterns in them, and he saw in them um, the structures of base 10 arithmetic. So um, he, he published these findings, he, he was, and people were very excited about it because for a very long time, people had been trying to figure out what was said in kipu. Um, and to find base 10 arithmetic in a very foreign-looking artifact from a culture that largely didn't exist was, I think, very exciting for folks um, because based on arithmetic is what, what we do in Western culture. Um, so to find that in a culture that was seemingly so familiar from us, um, unfamiliar, was very exciting. Um, so, so Locke's findings held for, for a long time, for many decades, um, until um, other anthropologists and mathematicians with more knowledge about Incan culture and, and who had made more attempts to contact Incan descendants um, sort of poked a lot of holes in his findings. So Locke had ignored a lot of the knot patterns and the color patterns in the kipu that he had, which um, strikes us as like very bad historical practice. But also, if you think about it from a math perspective, if you're ignoring a lot of the patterns in your documents, then you're not being a very good mathematician either. Um, and the, the patterns and the colors that he ignored pointed to um, some more like organizing structures in kipu that, that uh, the knots weren't just numbers, right? Some of the, the knots were sort of like designations that like, this is a list, or this is a table, or this is some other structure that we would use in, you know, in writing, we can, you know, denote with like lines that are different from symbols, but the Inca showed with knots. Um, and then even more recently, um, some anthropologists who have made a real effort to get in touch with Incan descendants to live with them, to learn from their elders, um, to take their story seriously, have found that not all the knots are numbers, some of them might actually be words, right, like names of places and things like that. Um, so if, um, and, the, and the, you know, in, in Incan, in, you know, word of mouth history that was passed down through the generations in Incan cultures, there were stories of kipu that had held in them histories, right? Or, um, you know, someone's life story or something like that. And if those stories, those stories were probably not just arithmetic problems, right? No one, no one writes down their life history in a, in a series of base 10 calculations. Um, so, so Locke and these mathematicians who were making these claims had ignored a lot of um, cultural history. Um, so, so that's sort of the, the rough story. And now we know a little bit more about Kipu and we're, and we're able to listen to the stories of Incan descendants and maybe get some better translations of these documents that were very important to a, a really um, amazing civilization. Um, and so I think what you, your interpretation of this was um, that this is sort of a story of how our math training um, hid from us um, the meanings that were in these Kipu. And I think, I think that is part of the story, but I think what, what I like to keep in mind is that any training that we have, um, whether it be math or historical or, or anything, will help us understand some things, but will hide other things from us. Um, so, so Locke's mathematical training helped him see the patterns that he found, which were that there are, there are examples of base 10 arithmetic in Kipu, and that was a very important finding, and his mathematical training helped him see that. But, but what he didn't know 
um, which was a lot about Incan culture, um, about proper historical practice and proper proper archaeological practice, um, kept him from seeing other things about Kipu, right? The the larger stories that were within them. Um, and I think the real problem, the, the problem is not that the things that you know are going to hide other things from you. I think the real problem is when you don't know that, right? When you think that what you know is everything and that there's nothing else that you need to learn. Um, and I think that what this gets at is that um, there is a real power in thinking that math is the universal language um, when, when there, and that math is, is something with a lot of power. When, when you're in power, the people in power often think that they're the ones who are the most right. Um, so if, if, your, if your knowledge and your feelings about your own power have put you in a place where you don't feel that you have anything that you need to learn, then you're not going to understand everything that's put in front of you, especially if it comes from a culture that's very different from yours. On the one hand, an important part of our training always needs to be and often fails to be a humility with respect to what we're not trained in. There's this saying that someone becomes 10 times harder to convince of anything they don't understand when they get a PhD. Um, and so having that awareness that not just open-mindedness, but um, but inward pulling-mindedness, a desire, a, 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 not a willingness, but an eagerness to sort of reach out and find what elements you're missing from the story you're trying to tell yourself or the, or the understanding you're trying to gain is just as essential as the training, perhaps more essential than the real narrow training that you receive in a long-term academic program. And at the same time, I feel like I find it pretty easy to really uh, zoom in on the detective story part of this while omitting the atrocious history behind it and letting go of that human element while focusing on the sort of mathematical game playing that be that's become part of the anthropology following. And so I appreciate you bringing that up. And yeah. I want to acknowledge that it's something that I that myself could do a little bit better on. Yeah, and I think um, one of the people I wrote about in the chapter who was um, working on translating um, Plimpton 322, her name is Eleanor Robeson. Um, she, um, one of her, I think one of her quotes that sticks with me most is that um, doing um, anthropology and archaeology like this, trying to translate historical documents, is not like you're playing a detective game, right? You aren't, you aren't Hercule Poirot um, piecing together the clues in your mansion cut off from the outside world, right? It's not your little, your little cells in your head are not going to be the ones that crack this. You have to reach out and know what you don't know. Um, and, and for mathematicians, I think that often involves doing some very uncomfortable work of, of doing things that aren't math, right? We, you have to, if you're going to translate something like this, you have to do some math, right? You have to look for the patterns and, and try to make sense of them in the ways that mathematicians do, but you also might have to learn some history. Um, talk to some people from foreign cultures and try to reach out beyond what you know, um, because because what we what we know now is not everything that there is to know or ever has been to know. Um, so we have to do some hard work of, of interdisciplinary work um, if we're going to do a lot of this problem solving. I think this is not doesn't just apply to the the problems that I talked about in this chapter, which were mostly about translating um, ancient documents, but um, solving any problem in an applied field, um, learning some of the techniques and the ways of working that that are done in a field that you're applying math to um, turns out to be very important for solving problems in an applied way. Those are points very well taken. You begin chapter two uh, with one of my favorite historical accounts. And again, this is amidst uh, a pretty terrible overriding environment. Um, but the Christmas truces of 1914 have become a pretty popular historical anecdote. And while 
when I first read about them, the actions of these working class soldiers never really confused me. I also had never thought about it in the context of game theory, even though I was aware of the sort of wartime genesis of that discipline. So can you give us an idea of why mathematicians who model war might not at first have expected this behavior? Yeah, so I think when you, so the Christmas truce, just the rough story of it is, um, in 1914, we're, we're still very early in World War I, but the war had been going on for a while. And um, the opposing sides were very much entrenched in their trenches, um, picking each other off in, a, in what would, you know, what was then and would become over time a very gruesome um, and sort of dehumanizing affair um, of, of like shooting at people you can barely see from across an expanse of, an expanse of no man's land. Um, but it, at Christmas time, um, it was very, very widespread across the front lines. Soldiers put down their guns and got up out of their trenches, took a very like sort of like surprising and bold move um, of celebrating Christmas with um, their opponents um, across the trenches. And then, you know, when Christmas was over, they went back in their holes and resumed shooting at each other like they were supposed to. Um, and I think when you think about it, it doesn't feel that surprising that you would do that. Right. Um, it's it's actually, I think, more surprising that that these people fought each other at all, right? And when you think about m most wars, um, national leaders have to do a lot of work to convince the people who are actually fighting um, and, and putting their lives on the line that this is something worth fighting for. And I think in you know, World War I politics, this was very much the case, right? That what, what, what was being fought over in World War I was not immediately compelling to the working class, regular folks who were being asked to put their lives on the line for this. Um, so, so I think, um, so when you think about game theory, though, I think um, the you're right, game theory was sort of derived out of a warfare context, not necessarily World War One, but like later wars. Um, and, and it, it, it did not take into account that sometimes cooperation might be a logical response to competition. Um, so, so I think the original formulations of game theory sort of place um, non-cooperation, right? Fighting for your own personal interest as like that is the most logical thing to do. And it wasn't really until um, I think like the 1980s when um, game theorists, mathematicians, and biologists worked together to try to understand some sort of surprising findings about interspecies cooperation, right? Like species that you would think should be in competition with each other. Um, are actually actually work together in ways that are not immediately apparent to us from when we take a perspective of competition um, to, to ensure their mutual survival. Um, so a, a collaboration between biologists and game theorists in the 1980s opened up a new field of game theory where cooperation actually ends up being a very logical response to a competitive environment. Um, so I think also another thing to think about with game theory is that um, when game theory was developed, you, you want to think about what was it meant, whose behavior was it meant to explain? Um, is it meant to explain the behavior of sort of like nations or corporations, um, the, these like large entities that are that are made up of many people, but that we treat as individuals being capable of making logical choices? Or was it meant to explain the behavior of all the people who make up these nations? And I think game theory is often often treats nations companies as if they are capable of making decisions, which, which they, they do act in, a, in, you know, in, the, in the political space played at that level. Nations are, are acting in ways that have certain logic to them, but it's not necessarily the same logic as an individual soldier who, you know, on Christmas Eve is tired of killing somebody who actually probably only lived like 100 miles from him. 
Um, it might have been someone that you you easily could have run across, you know, from between France and Germany or, you know, any of these places that were very close together and might actually rather have a beer than keep shooting. Um, so I think, yeah, so I think that's the, um, the history of game theory um, sheds a lot of light on why we think that conflict is the logical response to a competitive environment and not cooperation. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. You go into a fair amount of detail um, within this chapter on the development of these ideas, not primarily from a historical perspective, but by but by a series of examples from simple to, very, to extremely complex games. And I don't want to go through the entire trajectory here. Uh, you discuss, for example, Nikki Case's online game, Evolution of Trust, which listeners should check out. I did when you recommended it. It's really interesting. Which draws, I, as I understand it, from Robert, Robert Axelrod's Evolution of Cooperation tournament, which listeners may um, have also heard of, but allows players to experiment with strategies against their opponents. Perhaps the closest virtual approximation to a real-world game of trust was itself triggered by accident. And so I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about the corrupted blood epidemic, what it was, and what has been learned from it. Yeah, sounds pretty scary, right? Corrupted blood. <laughs> um, it's not as scary as it sounds unless you play World of Warcraft because it was a, it was a World of Warcraft epidemic. Um, My immediate thought on hearing the name <laughs> was that it was a virtual gameplay epidemic of some kind, but I don't... <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no one has ever heard of that kind of disease and whatever it is, it sounds absolutely terrible. So I hope no one ever builds a real world version of that. <laughs> um, yeah, so Corrupted Blood was an epidemic introduced into the game World of Warcraft, which is a very popular um, virtual game environment um, that has like, I, I've only played it, I played World of Warcraft once with my friend's little sister. So basically everything I know about how to play that game comes from that like hour long experience, <laughs> um, but it was really cool. Um, so, so it was like a software update in the World of Warcraft environment and that unleashed this epidemic um, that, that functioned a lot like a real world epidemic, like the one we're in, encountering right now, COVID-19, where um, people didn't know what it was, people didn't know how it spread, but it was causing massive effects across the whole World of Warcraft space. Um, sort of like similar to what we're experiencing right now, some World of Warcraft characters, which are like, it's like mythical creatures that have various power abilities. So like, as you play World of Warcraft, you gain um, more abilities and experience that might like make you stronger as a character and more able to deal with things um, in the environment. Um, characters that had a larger, more strength and more power might have been asymptomatic. So they might have had this corrupted blood thing and they were spreading it unknowingly, right? Just like people today um, might spread COVID-19 unknowingly because they're asymptomatic. Um, and, but other characters were really stricken by it and, and, and were killed. 
Um, so you might think when think you know if you don't really know know that much about World of Warcraft, you might be like, oh well, no big deal. Let's just like fix this glitch. Um, everybody like log off for. 12 hours or something like that. Well, the software designers can fix this, but no, people who play World of Warcraft are very attached to their characters. Um, they, you play this game for a really long time. Your characters grow over time. You you meet other people through the virtual environment. Um, so what I think was really interesting about the corrupted blood epidemic from the perspective of epidemiologists, and in particular, epidemiologists who try to use math to model um, the spread of disease and how um, people's behavior will affect the spread of disease was that um, the World of Warcraft and the corrupted blood epidemic represented a really good testing ground for a lot of their ideas because um, no one was actually getting hurt. Um, maybe like some people's feelings were getting hurt when their character died of World of Warcraft, but like no one was physically being injured. But the the humans behind the characters really cared about this disease and about its progression. So you sort of had a meeting of a no one gets hurt epidemic with, um, and everybody really cares about what happens and is trying to help each other and behave in really human ways. Um, so this, this, um, uh, Dr. Nina Pfefferman, whose work I write about in this book, to, um, saw this as a really good opportunity to learn about, um, the intersection between human behavior and disease spread. Um, so it, it's, it's hard for epidemiologists to get that kind of data because when there's an actual epidemic going on, our, our response we're not all about studying what's happening. We're about fixing the problem. So, so real epidemics are not good times for researchers trying to find out how human behavior affects the spread of disease because, because we're trying to fix the problem, right? You have to do a lot of retrospective work. Um, so part of Dr. Pfefferman, um, it's part of her innovative work that bridges math, biology, and social psychology. Um, and, and I think she, she is a rare mathematician who knows as much about new innovations in studies of psychology and decision-making and behavior as she does about math and modeling. Um, and she was able to bring those connections um, between those two fields to, to use the corrupted blood epidemic to, to examine some of her theories about how um, human behavior affects the spread of disease and sometimes in unexpected ways. Um, so for instance, something she saw were, and, and maybe this doesn't sound as surprising to us now because we're living through COVID-19, is that people were inadvertently spreading the disease while trying to help other people. Um, partly because they didn't have full information, but also because people people make decisions in in ways that might seem illogical, um, but from you know from a, a retrospective position, but that when you're in the moment feel like they make a lot of sense. Um, but that you know while while helpers were spreading the disease, they were also helping at the same time, and it's so hard to model and quantify um, the impact of a behavior that is both helping and hurting at the same time, um, but also seemingly very natural for humans to do. Um, so. So I think what Dr. Pfefferman did with um, this World of Warcraft epidemic was she tried to think about how could you model that behavioral complexity, right? How do we incorporate into our mathematical models, which have to be relatively streamlined in order to make any sense to us, um, the real human complexity of behavior? There's a quote, from, I think, from Nikki Case towards the end of the chapter that I thought really summed up its um, a core lesson there, which is... We are each other's environment. Yeah, I really like that one. The idea that we tend to think of environment as affecting our behavior and our behavior maybe affecting our environment, but it, it's a separate leap to model our behavior as the, as the substance of the environment that everybody else, including ourselves, is living in. And while it's a dire kind of setting, an epidemic is a really 
acute way of of examining that. Yeah, I think I think we're all living with that right now, um, where like you know the the spread of the epidemic and human behavior are the same thing. You know, th- there's the there's the virus and and things that you might think about with the virus that maybe you could ignore human behavior, but but like an epidemic is a is a public health issue where the what the public is doing is creating the environment from the spread of the disease. Um, and I think um, Dr. Pfefferman's work, which I think if the listeners who are interested in epidemiology, especially given the current environment, should really look into, um, she really takes seriously from a mathematical perspective how we can use some of the um, newer theories in about um, decision-making and human behavior um, and incorporate them into mathematical models um, from the perspective of, like, we are we are the environment, right? We are the environment is not existing around us and we're just sort of moving around in it. We are creating the environment through the decisions that we make. Jumping into chapter three, this chapter is titled, Can Math Eliminate Bias? You begin with a critical look at the use of algorithms in jurisprudence. I'll admit I have some familiarity with this recently, having looked into similar questions and conundrums in medical science. To evaluate risk, to inform the setting of bail, in the medical setting to uh, inform in addition to the machine learning applications to diagnostics, but in particular to triage, to prioritization, to resource allocation, to discharge. To set the stage for some of the follow-up questions, um, can you say just what you think is the baseline knowledge we should all have about this practice? Yeah, so um, I'll use a, a current event for this. So I live in California. Um, and we were in this upcoming election where we vote on a number of ballot measures, um, one of which is uh, Prop 25, which is about replacing cash bail with risk assessments, which risk and risk assessments are these algorithms that re- you're referring to They're They are algorithms that um, are built from you know, large data sources about um, arrest and policing histories. Um, and they and they are used They take information about a defendant. And they and they spit out a risk assessment, which is a, a number, sometimes from one to ten, or maybe like one to four, or something like that, um, that that characterizes the seeming risk that this person would face um, if you were to um, release them without cash bail before trial. So, 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 like historical practice in the, in, in the U.S. is largely that if you are arrested um, on the thought that you may have committed a crime um, before trial, you might be held um, in jail. Um, and possibly set a bail amount. And if you can pay that bail amount, then you are allowed to go um, back to your home while you await trial. Um, and if you can't, then you might have to sit in jail until your trial is, is, happens. Um, and you, you could, if you don't, if you aren't out on bail, you could be in prison, you can be in jail for a very long time um, awaiting trial. Um, so, and this has a, a, a big effect on people's lives, right? If you think about um, whether or not you committed the crime, if you're, if you're sitting in jail for a long time waiting for your trial, you can't go about your daily life. You can't take care of your family. You can't feed your kids. You can't have your job. Um, and, and this, like, you know, if you didn't commit the crime, this sounds absolutely horrible. But even if you did, this is not, this is not, our, our, the system in our country is that you are presumed innocent until you are you are convicted of the crime, um, and holding people in jail for an extended period of time before trial doesn't seem to match up with this practice. Um, so, in a lot of places, including in California, um, there is an attempt to get rid of cash bail for lower level offenses, um, but there's a fear among you know people, some people in the population, that if we get rid of cash bail, then we might actually be letting out people who, who pose a risk to the public. Um, so to sort of mitigate that fear, 
um, lots of places are introducing these risk assessments, which um, use large data, big data sets about um, arrest histories to um, produce risk assessments that judges can use when they're deciding whether or not this is a, a no bail situation or whether or not this person should be held um, before trial. So, um, so this is very common around the country. California is not the only place that's doing this. Um, in my chapter, I talk about New Jersey. There's a risk assessment that's commonly used. Um, so something that's happening a lot. And I think, and in California, voters are put in a position to make a decision about this. And so I think it is very important that people know a little bit about um, what these things are and, and why they're being introduced. Um, so I think, I think there are, from my perspective, there are three stories here about um, risk assessments. Um, one is um, garbage in, garbage out. So um, when you're making an algorithm that is using data to produce some sort of information for a judge to use, the algorithm is only as good as the data and the decision-making that went into it. So when we think about um, these algorithms, which are called recidivism algorithms, um, if the data themselves are biased, then the decision, the assessment that's being produced by the algorithm is, is also going to be biased and possibly in a magnified way. Um, so um, Kathy O'Neill, who is uh, a popular author about algorithms and has really spoken to the, the power and the danger of algorithms um, in society, has said that, that the, I, I like the way she puts this, that the data we have are, are not about crime, they're about arrests. So these are, these are police data, which are derived from policing practices, and they are about who has been arrested, not about what crimes have been committed. Um, so if we're using, and, and you know, a lot of people, especially recently, have pointed out how um, policing practices tend to be biased, especially towards neighborhoods where people of color and people with lower incomes live. Um, so if we're using these data, then we have to expect that they might produce, the algorithm might produce results that themselves are biased against people of color, sort of perpetuating some of the problems that um, eliminating cash bail are, um, is supposed to sort of mitigate. So I think that's, that's one story here. The second story is that um, these recidivism algorithms are largely secret. We don't know how they work. Um, because they are created and held by companies that are, you know, that partner with law enforcement um, to, to, you know, bring these into judicial practice. So if, if we don't know, we, we can see the effects of some of these algorithms when they've been used. And um, a lot of reporting by ProPublica, which is part of what I write about in this chapter, sort of like points to, to what we can learn about what these algorithms are doing from looking at what, what outcomes they have for people. Um, but but if, if we are going to bring these into our, public, into our public lives, I think we need to know more about the parameters, the data, and the goals that govern the algorithms that we're using. Um, it, I think, and, and Kathy O'Neill also points this out, I think we need to have more oversight over the algorithms that we're bringing into our, into our public lives, right? We, lots of places, vote on judges. We, we have oversight over our elected officials, maybe not as much as people would like, but we have almost no oversight over these algorithms that are being used to enhance judicial decision-making. So I think that's the second story. Um, and then the third story, which I think is m more of what I get at in this chapter, is that um, what, how these algorithms work and whether or not we like them is wrapped up in the fundamental questions about what we mean by fairness. So um, these algorithms were developed by some attempt to solve a fairness problem, but but what that problem is depends on how you look at it. So so um, it, you know I told the story of, of that these algorithms are being introduced to to help people not have to go to jail for a long time before trial just because they can't afford bail, which is a fairness question. But but fair can mean many things. So so does fair mean 
to you that um, everyone gets what's coming to them, right? If, if that's your perspective on fairness, then you might be very concerned about the risk that letting a defendant out into society would cause to the public and that we might not get justice in the way that you think of fairness. Um, does fairness mean that we work to repair past damages done unfairly, right? If that's what fairness means to you, then you would really care that people not be held before trial at unfair bails that um, put people who don't have large amounts of money in, in more jeopardy than others. If that's what fairness means to you, then, then that, that would be a very different orientation towards this problem um, than someone who thinks that, you know, our, our justice system is about retribution for crimes committed, right? Um, and, then, and then another perspective is, does fair mean that the public is protected, right? Are we thinking about fairness from the perspective of, of maybe like sort of a broadly constructed law-abiding public who might be put at risk from people being let out. And this is, I think, this is all very like, like, you know, your assumptions about the public and who they are in, um, and who people who are defendants are, I think is really loaded with like racial images and ideologies about like what crime is and who commits crimes. Um, and then, or, or, you know, maybe you're thinking fairness means, does it mean that we center the needs of the neediest and those who have been most put at, in jeopardy by our past bail practices, right? These are very all very different perspectives on fairness and, and what you want a risk assessment to do and how it will help decision-making really depends on what you think fairness is. Um, and this is something that I think this chapter really tries to point out, that um, um, more often than not, these risk assessments come from a perspective of protecting the public writ large from some um, defendant who is positioned as separate from everyday people, um, and from a, a perspective of like retribution rather than um, remedying of past injustices done to people who have been held for long periods of time without bail for crimes that they have not yet been convicted of doing. So that's a really helpful breakdown into those three stories that this chapter, or that this sec- these sections of this chapter tell. And they segue, they somehow all three segue into the next question I was going to ask, which is, um, which is to lead into what are sometimes called impossibility theorems. I prefer the term incompatibility theorem um, by allusion to Kenneth Arrow's famous, uh, um, well, I'll call them incompatibility theorems about voting procedures. With respect to the garbage in, garbage out story, um, listeners are probably familiar with the idea that algorithms can learn biases from historical data that then get reproduced by the implementation of the algorithm. From the perspective of transparency, the story you tell about about the algorithms investigated by ProPublica, as I recall, had to do with an algorithm that was tailored in a certain way, and then jumping to your third story, towards one definition of fairness, where people may have assumed or acted as though it was intended towards or geared towards a different definition of fairness. And that only came out once the algorithm was not made public, but some experimenters ran through some more transparent, some fully informative data and saw and examined what the outcomes of that algorithm were. And so the question, my question was going to be if you could get into how these questions of um, um, reproduction of bias, transparency, and fairness um, are mathematized, since this is a a math podcast, what are the, um, how does that manifest in a mathematical statement that's useful for teaching the mathematics as well as its role in society. Yeah. So in, um, so I think this is a, like yeah, this, like, you know, this is a book about math, but it's a book about math as applied to um, social problems. And there are there, it's not that like the math 
can't tell us anything, right, about whether how we can apply it to the social problems. And I think that um, this one of these results that I talk about in this chapter um, is work by um, three mathematicians who also work in, in economics um, and in, in behavioral decision making. Um, John Kleinberg, Sandhil Malayanathan, and Manish Rangavan, and I'm sorry if I'm saying their names not entirely correctly, um, but but they they wrote a paper um, related to this 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 data about um, you know that was uncovered by ProPublica and analyzed about this one particular recidivism algorithm that that showed that um, if you you if you think about fairness from they have three different perspectives on it if you think about fairness from these three different perspectives they are in fact incompatible uh, meaning that like mathematically we can show that you can't have all of them at the same time, right? And I think mathematicians are, are familiar with um, incompatibility being something that's like often, often baked into mathematics, right? We, we, are, we, are now, we are now, you know, familiar with the fact that um, in, in a mathematical system constructed as, as you may have, you can't have everything you want be true all the time. Um, and like mathematically, this can be, this is like an interesting thing to us. We're like, oh, wow. Okay, cool. I found that like, you know, this, these things are incompatible in my system. But when, when applied into a social space, especially like whether, you know, risk assessments, um, this can have huge impact on people's lives. Um, and that you, you might have to, if, if things are incompatible, that means that you have to choose um, some over others. And then the cascading impacts on people's lives can be immense. Um, so, so in this, this paper, they, they roughly talked about that they're, there, there are three ways they thought about fairness. Um, one was that it, the al- for the algorithm to be fair, it must make accurate predictions. So um, if the algorithm says that um, a certain group of people have a 40% chance of committing a, a crime before trial by giving them maybe a score of like four out of 10, then, then, the al- then, then 40% of those people must actually go on to commit a crime, right? So like the, the results being projected by the algorithm must match some sort of thing that happens. Now, obviously, the algorithm can't tell the future. Um, so it's, it's very, you can't get this perfectly, right? But you want your algorithm to be as close as possible to getting something accurate. So that's one way it could be fair. And then the other two um, that they talked about are, are somewhat more complicated, but together, they, they sort of get at that if an algorithm is applied to different groups of people, who we know historically have different um, arrest results, say, such as like maybe, maybe black people and white people, um, the algorithm should not give members of one group higher or lower scores um, without having a good reason for doing so. So just for example, um, in, in the algorithm that they were looking at, um, it, which is called COMPASS, which is a, an, an acronym that I can't remember all the words for, it, so it's called COMPASS. Um, the, this, is, this is how the, this fairness criteria matched up with the data. So almost half of black defendants who were labeled by the algorithm as having a higher risk for recidivism, like, you know, maybe, maybe eight out of 10 or nine out of 10, that almost half of them did not actually go on to recidivate. So, but only 23% of white defendants who were labeled as higher risk did not go on to recidivate. So, so what these, what this result means is that the, the algorithm was incorrectly labeling black defendants as high risk more often than it was incorrectly labeling white defendants as riskier. And if you think about the impact that this has on people's lives, this means that uh, black defendants are more likely to not be released without bail while awaiting, awaiting trial because of a faulty risk assessment than are white defendants. Um, so so the, 
if you what this this paper showed was that these three types of fairness, right? One is accuracy, and then the other two are sort of like matching the prediction to different groups without giving false positives or false negatives at a at a rate that's disproportionate across different racial groups. Um, you can't have all three of these at the same time. And it turned out that Compass had chosen. Um, sort of more accuracy or not as many false negatives, right? Like calling somebody less risky than they actually turned out to be. Um, it, it privileged those two over false positives, leading um, especially black defendants in particular to be labeled as riskier at a higher rate than white defendants. Um, so I think that this these results show um, like the connection between um, so like the the a good relationship between mathematical findings that look at look at structures of mathematics to highlight incompatibility um, and how how mathematical systems work and then showing the impacts of, on on people's real lives right I think we can we can often do mathematics just in the math space without thinking about people's actual lives highlighting things like you know mathematical results like incompatibility and and doing proofs around those things but then not think about what that means for the lives of the people who are being affected by this incompatibility. Um, so this this paper and then the reporting by ProPublica, I think, really shows how we have to think about both of these things together, right? It's, it is not okay to pick some types of fairness over others because, like, like almost good, almost fair is, is not almost good enough, right? It is actually terrible for the people's lives um, that it affects. Um, and for the for what it says for our judicial system and and our, our feeling that people should not be um, punished for crimes that they have not done and and not before they've had any trial. Now, one conventional take on these problems is that social prejudices are influencing what would otherwise be impartial math, um, including among people who are really passionate about addressing the inequitable treatment um, that. That 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 emerges from these from these processes, but you also showcase in this chapter some cases in which the purest mathematics has been laden with social prejudices, and so I did want you to also, if you would, comment on um, what are what we've come what we mathematicians often refer back to as the secretary problem and the marriage problem. Yeah, so I think this is a. Um... The secretary problem and the marriage problem, I think, are like good examples of um, times when we had like some sort of like a pure math idea and then tried to put a situation on it to like maybe make it more compelling. Like I think at the the beginning of this of our of our interview, I was talking about how um, when we do math with children, we often like plop um, a situation on a math problem to sort of like make it more compelling. This this may have been what happened with the secretary problem and the marriage problem, but I think what when I read these problems. Um, the the like when you plop a situation on a math problem you're also plopping all of the stuff that's entailed by the situation um onto the math problem and then and then when you're interpreting your results you have to interpret them in the context of the situation that you stuck on and and my readings of the secretary problem and the marriage problem are that the implications of those situations are not ones that we would want to carry around so i'll just i'll just like tell what the problem is um so the the secretary problem as it's told is that um you are a boss and you want to hire a secretary. Um, and understandably, you want to hire the best secretary you can. Um, but you have been saddled with a very unfortunate interviewing process. Um, and so here is your process. You, the secretaries, you have maybe 10 secretaries waiting to be interviewed. They come into the room one at a time. You interview them, and then they go. And you cannot call them back. 
So this is um, very unfortunate. And if you have an interview process like this yourself, I would suggest that you institute a program of callbacks because this would solve your problem for you. <laughs> but this poor boss, you don't have callbacks. So the, the secretaries come in one at a time, you interview them, and you want to pick the best one. And the worst thing for you to do would be to interview all 10 because then you'd be stuck with the last one. And who even knows if the secretary is, the secretary could be the worst of the bunch, could be the best of the bunch, could be seven out of 10, you have no idea. So you have to do something other than that. Um, so the, the solution to this problem is um, something called the optimal stopping algorithm, um, which in essence tells you how many secretaries you should interview before you then decide that you're gonna evaluate them against the ones that came before. So the optimal stopping algorithm says, say, if you had these 10 candidates, you should interview the first 37% of them. This is like a, a rounded here. This is a, a calculation that's derived using E, um, but, um, but about 37% of them. And, and you don't take any of those. This is just sort of like your data collection phase. So if you had 10 candidates, you'd interview maybe four of them because you can't interview 3.7 secretaries. You have to interview four. Um, and you don't hire any of these secretaries. You just sort of like learn about them and get a sense for the for the field. Um, and then of the remaining secretaries, you interview them one at a time, and you pick the one that is better than the ones who have come before. So if you interviewed four secretaries and they were all kind of myth, then you interview you know the fifth secretary and this secretary is better than the ones that came before. You would immediately hire that one and you would not interview anybody else. Um, now there's a, a problem here, which is that you could. Say if, for example, in that first 37%, the best secretary of all showed up, you could not hire this person. And then when you interviewed the remaining candidates, they would all be worse than the ones you'd interviewed before. So you would not get anybody. This is a risk you have to take. Um, but if you do the optimal stopping algorithm, you have a pretty good chance of actually getting the best secretary and a very, very good chance of getting a secretary who is at least in the top five, right? Or in the top 50%. Um, so, so this sounds like kind of an inane problem situation. It's even a little bit funny because of the absurdity of the interview protocol that you are operating under, which is that you can't call anybody back. Um, but if you think about, so, and another way of telling this, this problem is, is in a marriage situation where instead of being a boss, you are, let's just say, a man interviewing potential wives who show up to you one at a time and you get to interview them and then reject them out of hand or accept them as being your spouse. Um, and I think when you when you tell this story from the marriage perspective, um, especially from a male perspective, which is how it's often told, right? I think there's like a sort of a legend. I think it was Kepler may have chosen his second wife this way. I might be saying the wrong person, but it was like some, some long dead person. Um, uh, then you kind of get at, you, you see that like underlying this protocol is the assumption that your secretaries or, or spouse candidates don't have any say in whether or not they are going to be hired by you or marry you. Um, and this is a very problematic assumption from a hiring perspective, and I think in particular, a marriage perspective, and that it's very inaccurate, right? When you're dating someone, you are not the only person who is accepting or rejecting marriage candidates, that your partner is also accepting or rejecting you. And the algorithm and the problem situation don't take that into account, right? There is no mechanism in this problem for a secretary or a spouse showing up for the fifth interview and looking at you and saying, you are not a boss I want, I am getting out of here. It is assumed that everybody loves you. Um, 
And, and this assumption puts this, this potential secretaries or your potential spouses in an unfortunate power dynamic, which is sort of like a, a not very, a not, a not super important, like major, but, but a replication of a society-wide assumption that, that women um, and secretaries are often women um, don't have any power in these decision-making situations. Um, and so I think this is, so, you know, you could say like, oh, well, talking about the secretary problem this way is like blowing up a, a, a really not significant problem. But I, but I talk about this in the book to highlight that the assumptions that we make about the problem, right, about, about what, what is going on here have a lot to do with our solution, right? The optimal stopping algorithm does not work if your secretaries can reject you. Uh, so, so you cannot proceed that way if you acknowledge that your secretaries or your wives have a say in what's going on. Um, and I think to tie this back to the recidivism algorithms, um, when you think about what problem you're trying to solve um, shapes the solution that you have. So is the problem of that we need these recidivism algorithms is that judges are overworked or we're worried about crime upticks if we eliminate cash bail, or are we actually trying to rectify um, one piece of, a, of a, a structure that has systematized racist and classist outcomes for people that has left um, certain groups of people in, in increasingly lesser positions of power as a result of our judicial system. It, it, depending on what problem we're trying to solve will depend on the solution that you have. Um, and and when, when algorithms come into play, especially black box algorithms that don't give us a window into their workings, um, how we frame the problem becomes very, very important because we don't have the tools to fully examine the implications of the solution. Now, the motivating question of chapter four is whether mathematics itself is or, or is properly thought of as potentially a social equalizer, not in the sense that we're all equally gifted, but in the, in the sense that the gifted among us can put our gifts to work, gain recognition, and perhaps a living for it. Because they provide such a stark contrast, um, could you share what lessons you take from the lives of Terence Tao and Srinivasa Ramanujan? Yeah, so I'll briefly tell some version of those stories. I think you know, whenever you're telling the story of someone's life, there's just so much. Lives are so long and rich. I'm only going to cover... Um, like a brief part of it. And I don't want to, you know, I'm just saying that so that, you know, if I'm characterizing what I, what, something I'm drawing from a story, it's not, this is not like the entire characterization of this entire person's life. Um, but um, so Ter Terrence Tao is a, is a very well-regarded and well-known mathematician living and working today who has, who has done important work across many um, branches of math, um, you know, most, most, most famously to the public in number theory um, around some un unsolved problems in the twin primes conjecture. Um, and Tao, um, as, as he tells his own story, um, is that as a young boy, he showed a lot of promise and interest in math. Um, and he, he was lucky to, to have you know, a family and, and friends around him who noticed his interest and took it seriously um, and made connections with people who could help him um, cultivate that interest and do, and do a lot of the important work that he's done today. Um, so, so I think for him, it's a, it's a real story of how um, like to, to build, to become a mathematician, it takes a community. Um, it, it takes, it takes your family, your friends, your educators who you know, your, your, your path through your career will not be, um, entirely smooth. You'll have hiccups, right? I think, um, Tao and, and some interviews I've read with him is, you know, he mentions times where he, he didn't do so well on an, on an exam. Um, and, and, but someone he was working with said, well, you just keep, keep going. This is not, this one exam is not the mark of your entire career. 
Um, and just to say, like, from my own perspective, I had, you know, when I was an undergrad um, and I was majoring in math, I was taking real analysis. Um, and, I, you know, real analysis is really hard for me. And I think it is for a lot of people. And it's, it's a place where I think a lot of people who are aspiring to major in math might drop out. Um, I went to my math professor. I was not doing as well as I wanted to in the course. I went to my math professor and I said, I don't think I'm going to take the second semester of this. I'm going to switch majors. And he said, no, don't do that. Um, you, what, what you're doing, you know, your mark on that last test is not the entire show of your mathematical ability. Um, and that was really pivotal for me. And it was an example of how um, I think, you know, if we measure our, our gifts, as I think you say, but, but our, our, you know, our ability to do math by, you know, these individual examination points that might make decision points for us, um, then, then we lose a lot of people um, who have a lot to bring to math. So that's just, you know, a brief sort of like, you know, whatever, branching off. Um, for for Ramanujan, um, it's, an, I think, also a story of connections, but but sort of like with a very different outcome. Um, so, so he was um, an Indian-born mathematician who lived at the beginning of the 20th century um, in, in British colonized India. Um, and he was, he was, he was very lucky um, to be um, from a caste and a social class where he was afforded an education of some kind. Um, he got, he, he got, you know, mathematical training that you might give to someone who's working in accounting or in business. Um, in India at the time, there were universities set up for, for professional training largely, but not for um, academic training, sort of of the sort that you would give to, to a person who's going on to be a pure mathematician. Um, so, so Ramanujan had, had the, um, had some mathematical training, but not, not of the pure type, but he had a real interest in it. So, so he pursued mathematical problems on his own, um, as, as a young person and as, you know, as a, a beginning careerist, um, and, and recorded a lot of his findings and invented mathematical language and then had like what I think is like just such an amazing, um, like audacity to send his findings to mathematicians in England, which just if you think about what it would take to do that, I, I would, you know, it's very scary to share your findings with another person, let alone someone you've never met and have absolutely no relationship with. Um, and he did this and he sent his findings to Europe um, to mathematicians in England, um, most notably to G.H. Hardy, who was working at Cambridge at the time. Um, and Hardy read the, these mathematical papers that he got and couldn't understand a lot of them, but thought that, that this person showed enough promise that he invited him over to England to work. Um, and then over, over just a few years, they had quite a rich collaboration. And a lot of it, I think, was um, constituted like Hardy and his colleagues trying to make sense of what Ramanujan had done. Um, and, and a lot of it was, I think, as, as it's described in the literature about them, is uh, you know, a lot of the time he had proven things that had already been done, right? Which in, in mathematics is sort of like not enough, right? We, we take a lot of stock in like doing something new. Um, so like reproving something that's already been done is really not enough for, for formal mathematicians in Europe. Um, but he had he had done a few things that, that were really important, and he, and he managed to publish some of these things. Um, but then he very sadly came, became very sick. Um, the, they were living through World War One. Um, the food was not widely available, especially not vegetarian food um, that someone from a Hindu background from India would would need. Um, and and I think what you what you read from accounts of his life is that he was really starved for um, personal connection. Um, I think even Hardy said that that it was hard for, for the two of them to form a personal bond because of their vast cultural differences. Um, and so, so Ramanujan sadly became very ill and then passed away within only a few years um, of making this connection with Hardy in England. Um, and, and as I think he's taken on a, a very legendary status um, within the mathematical community, there's, there's a book written about him in a movie 
Um, and, and to this day, people are still perusing his mathematical papers um, and finding sort of like little gems in them that, that as math develops, take on new importance. So I think one, one like sub story here is that like, um, as math grows, and as we, as we learn more about math and mathematicians make more progress, um, findings that may have in the past been looked at as sort of like trivial or really not relevant um, take on a new light. So I think there's some like computational findings um, that he had that have a little more significance now than they did before as we make progresses in computing um, and in, in doing large computations in more efficient ways. Um, so, but I think, so I think the, something I draw from these two stories um, told together um, is the importance of connections and community to making headway in mathematics. So for, for both of these people, um, the, the connections that, were, that they were able to make um, were pivotal to becoming members of a mathematical community. Maybe Tao was um, maybe more likely, sort of, if we think about his story, to have become a mathematician. Um, you know, he, he was from Australia, um, you know, his, and his family you know, you know, Ramanujan's family was not completely impoverished for the time in India, but he was from, he was living in a, in a, in a colonized society where um, people, Indian people were not, um, were not being prepared for mathematics, right? Tao did not have this disadvantage, but still for both of them, the connections they made were very important to the, to what happened in their lives. Um, but I think even more importantly, maybe, is that even if you have connections, that doesn't mean that when you when you go to do math, you don't have to, in a sense, give up your life to do it, um, which I think is what happened to Ramanujan. He had to leave his family behind. He had to leave his culture behind and enter into a society that um, was not set up, what, that was set up to be, that was, I think, set up to be rather hostile to his presence, um, even though Hardy was, um, in a lot of sense, very welcoming, especially for the time of a person who seemed, seemed very um, unlikely to be able to succeed. Um, so I think the, the invitation to come join us doesn't mean that the world that you're joining is going to be inhabitable for you. Um, so I think that that's a, a main conclusion I take from this. And then a third one is just it, it's very important what happens to you as a kid. Um, so, so I think Tao, Tao was very lucky as a child to be shown that his childhood love and, and ability for math mattered. Um, and, and this is so important. What happens to you as a kid shapes what happens to you as an adult. We, we, we develop a lot of our perspectives on who we are in the world and our importance to the world as children. Um, so I think anything we can do to help children feel that the thoughts they have about math are important um, is very important for their futures. So this allows me to segue a bit into a different uh, a perspective on community and um, and and com- community self support and the importance of connections of social networks, and that is democracy not as a structure of government but as a social pr- process. We sometimes think of democracy as a way of reconciling diverse values. And we like to insist that this process relies on a shared set of facts. Yet you conclude this chapter with a classroom example of a very democratic process for establishing not not to say just fact, but mathematical truth. So I really hope you could talk through how this process went and what can be learned from it as well. Yeah, so I have to give full credit to this idea um, to um, Ben Blum Smith who is a, a mathematician and math educator who's actually um, right now running a, a program on math and democracy through NYU Courant. 
Um, he, I, Ben Blum Smith is an amazing math teacher and I've learned so much from him. Um, he has, he also has a blog called research and practice, which I'm going to read a little quote from when, um, defining what, um, sort of the democratic process of math is. Um, he, I, I learned, um, I took sort of an informal abstract algebra class from him that really opened up my views of, of math. So, um, so he's a very important person to me. Um, but so, so Ben Blum Smith has sort of, um, sort of used this term democratic process, um, to characterize what it means to do math. And I'm going to read from uh, something he wrote as part of a virtual conference on rehumanizing mathematics, which is something I can talk more about a little bit later. Um, so ben, ben wrote in this, in this post that math is nothing more mysterious than communities of humans trying to figure things out together, that the process that can lead to all mathematical knowledge is something that they and anyone can participate in that they can be the authors of such knowledge. And this is something he wants to convey to students. And he adds um, that, that they, students, are entitled to a say in what the community they are a part of believes about math and that their own sense of what to believe benefits by being part of a community, thoughtfully working together to try to figure things out. Um, so I think in this, in this statement, um, Blum Smith describes the process of doing math, right, the, of, of students doing math and of adults doing math as one of communities trying together to make sense of math and, and that the, the sense-making, the math sense-making process that we're engaging in is made richer by engaging more voices in that process. Um, so in, in the chapter, I tell the story of a class that, that Blum Smith was teaching through a program called um, Bridge to Enter Advanced Mathematics, which is a um, now a sort of a nationwide program aimed at bringing students from underrepresented communities in middle school um, and, you know, middle school through high school into mathematics, sort of like with the, with the drawing on the, the sense that what happens to you as a kid um, in math is really important to how, to how life will proceed as an adult and that, that being in touch with mathematical communities is a really big deal for children. Um, so, so the story is of these, this class that Ben, that ben was teaching um, and they were they were trying to prove um, the the infinity of primes um, in this class. Um, and sort of roughly the, how the story goes is one student named Jaden had like sort of spat out a, a proof that was correct, but the rest of the class didn't understand it. And I think if, if you can think of your own experience in math class, this is something you've probably happened to you before. And more likely than not, if you're if you're me, you were the person who didn't understand the proof that was spat out by somebody else. Um, and in a lot of math classes, I think when somebody spits out a correct result. The, the teacher would just be like, oh, great. Okay, we're done here. Moving on. But, but that's not the democratic process as, as Ben talks about it. What's, what's important in the democratic process is that we are a community of humans making sense of math together. And if one person has made sense of math, but the other people have not, then our community has not made sense of this math. So Ben, um, as a very like artful teacher, um, what, sort of engage the students in, in thinking together, do we all buy this proof that Jaden has produced? And if we don't, then we still have more work to do. We have not proven this idea if we don't all buy it. Um, so then the, the story goes on. Another student named Talia um, attempts to restate Jaden's proof and, and does so in a way that's more understandable, but is not entirely correct, right? So, so that the, the process, the democratic process of doing math together might involve as we make sense of things together, we don't we, we sort of like mess it up along the way. But then the but then you know she left out a part and then the community came together and and together constructed the proof that was both correct and understandable by everybody. Um, and this is sort of like 
I think Ben's one of Ben's examples of the democratic process in action. And I think so. I think that something that's highlighted by this story is that math is a community process that everyone is engaged in of sense making. And this is this is part of what we mean by democracy, right? That that democracy is a process of a community of people making decisions that we think are most reasonable for all of us. Um, I think another thing that this highlights that that Ben doesn't bring out in this in this post that I write about, um, but that also that democracy is not supposed to be the tyranny of the majority or um, of the loudest few who may have convinced the majority over the minority, right? In, in democracy, in, in its ideal form, we don't stop talking about something when just 51% of the people are okay with it. We have, we, we are allowed to, we may, you know, vote on it and make a decision, but we revisit this idea again and again, intentionally making space for the minority or for the quietest among us or, you know, those who have not had the opportunity to speak to get to engage. And I think in this, in the story of Jaden and Tulia and this class making sense of the infinitude of primes, you hear um, how, how Jaden maybe in spitting out a correct proof at first is, is sort of representative of maybe the loudest and the most vocal majority. Um, if in, in a, in a non-democratic but tyranny of the majority society, if he won over 51% of the class, we could just move on. But in a real democracy, we make space for Tulia and the, and the students who do not yet understand to add their voices. And, and in the process, not only do more people get to participate, but the math gets better, right? The proof that they had at the end of this process was better than the proof that Jaden produced at first, even though it was completely correct, because it included um, aspects in it that allowed everyone to make sense of the important mathematical findings. Um, so I think so I think that a key point for me here is that the democratic process is not just more inclusive, it's also a process for better math. Um, and that, that we will have better math if we take seriously the fact that math is a process of community sense-making where everyone gets to participate. I think I'm going to let you cap that discussion. That was a really great way um, of describing some takeaways from that example. In Chapter 5, uh, which is called What is Genuine Beauty? You go through several examples that I think would really benefit from a visual perspective that we don't really have at our disposal right now. So... <laughs> What I wanted to do instead was have you reiterate G.H. Hardy's criteria for mathematical beauty, which you, which you recap in the chapter, um, and what you determine after putting them to the test. So you put them to, as I count, three tests here. You look at subsequent mathematical commentary on mathematical beauty or the relationship between beauty and mathematics. Um, the aesthetic dispositions of other mathematicians and some of the history of mathematics where this has played an important role. Yeah. So, um, so a lot of this chapter, um, is built around what you said are GH Hardy's criteria for mathematical beauty, which he, um, articulates in his, uh, famous book, the, the mathematician's apology, where, um, he's sort of like, semi-ironically apologizes for um, the um, sort of impracticality of the pursuit of pure math. Um, and it's, it's an ironic apology um, because he isn't, he's not really apologizing. He's sort of like arguing for why um, pure math is a valuable thing, even though it's not often done with um, explicit intention to be applied to what, you know, you might characterize as the real world, which I think is sort of like a fuzzy dichotomy. And I think, you know, but this book sort of highlights that, that, you know, the, the distinction that we have between pure math and applied math and, you know, 
the world of imagination and the world of reality is sort of a, a, a very fuzzy boundary in reality. But, but in, in any case, um, so in, in this book, Hardy outlines what he says are sort of like universal criteria for mathematical beauty. Um, and he says that when, when we do pure math, part of, part of how we decide that the math that we're doing is valuable and true is whether or not it meets our aesthetic standards, right? That math, math is as much, math is in, in, in some part an, an art form um, and, and how, we, how we know that we're, we're being spoken to in a true way is whether or not um, the math is aesthetically beautiful. And, and his criteria are sort of roughly um, that, that beautiful math is abstract, significant, intuitive, and unexpected. Um, and, and in the chapter, I, I talk about how um, these four criteria um, are, are often present in, in math that mathematicians widely view as beautiful, but, but are not always compatible. Um, so in particular, um, I think the criteria of um, beautiful math being unexpected um, gets short shrift um, in math, often to the detriment of, of our progress in the field, um, especially when um, the unexpected math is coming from an unexpected source. Um, so, so this is just, you know, one example of, of sort of like maybe you would not find a lot of unexpectedness here is in um, proofs of the Pythagorean theorem. Um, there are so many proofs of the Pythagorean theorem. There are hundreds and hundreds of them. It's sort of like a rite of passage to have your own proof of the Pythagorean theorem. And there is just sort of like nothing that is less unexpected than another proof of the Pythagorean theorem, right? Not only because like, oh my gosh, we know how to prove this thing already, but because like, okay, so of course someone made another one, right? Um, but, but like among these, these hundreds of ways of proving this same seemingly very simple fact, um, there are a lot of different aesthetic appeals. Um, so I think a lot of us, um, in particular, I talk about Stephen Strogatz's um, writing about this one visual proof of the Pythagorean theorem, which like if, if you are someone who's familiar with proofs of this thing, it's probably the first one that pops into mind. And like, yes, this is a very visual thing and it's very hard to describe. Um, but it's a proof where you get like two squares and the essence of the proof is that is it's an area-based proof where um, we've packed these triangles and these squares into the same size shape in different arrangements and how it's arranged shows that the, the area of the square on the A side of the triangle and the area of the square on the B side of the triangle, if you add them together, you get the same area as the area of the square on the C side of your triangle. Um, and, and this is, I think, I think this is a very, this is a very beautiful proof. I think it's widely accepted as a beautiful proof um, because it's abstract. Um, it conveys the significance of the Pythagorean theorem. It's, it's in a part intuitive because it draws on our visual understanding of area. Um, which is like, and, and the use of the word square, right? A squared as a square, there's a square here and we're looking at its area. Um, and, but I think it's, it's sort of like, um, and it also is a little unexpected because it's a visual proof. It's a proof that doesn't need words really to, to illuminate its findings. Um, and, and then, but then there are, there are other proofs of Pythagorean theorem that don't have quite the same simplicity of it um, that you that are sometimes rejected as ugly. So I talk about Stephen Strogatz sort of like talking about another proof of the Pythagorean theorem as, as an ugly proof. And it's a proof that doesn't heavily rely on visual cues or on area models. Instead, it, it goes into the world of similarity and ratios and maybe what you might think is a detached and um, non-intuitive space for thinking about the Pythagorean theorem. But, but for me, when I look at, at a proof that uses um, similarity, um, instead of area models or maybe even just straight up algebra, um, that's unexpected for me. Right? A, a connection between the Pythagorean theorem and triangle similarity um, 
maybe maybe shouldn't be unexpected because these things are all tied together um, through the subject of trigonometry, which through which the Pythagorean theorem is very important. Um, but but it's sort of unexpected to me to see um, triangle similarity, which can sort of be like see feel like algebra magic, um, become a really powerful way of proving the Pythagorean theorem. And and I think for for me, unexpected when math is unexpected, that's when we're learning. Right? When, when you see something that's surprising to you, that jars with your intuitive sense or, or maybe your, your over time accumulated sense of what math is, this is an opportunity for you to learn um, as an individual and then also, I think, as a field. Right? There are many examples over the history of mathematics of something unexpected cropping up that, that really butt up against our intuition and, and our, our taken for granted sense of what is significant and what is abstract. Um, and that, but that, you know, really taking seriously this unexpected mathematics helped us learn new things and uncover new worlds. And I think the example that I go into in detail in the chapter of this um, is of the the sort of uncovering of um, hyperbolic space and and the you know finding that like that it is not um, it's not provable that in in the geometric system as Euclid lays out that, that you only have one parallel line through a given point. Um, so, so I won't go into that in a ton of detail here. People can read about that if they want to, but this is a story of people fearing the unexpected, um, I think in essence, and then, but then realizing that the unexpected itself holds the kernels of intuition, abstraction, and significance um, in it. And then, and then you learn. Now, by way of closing this chapter on my reading, you also, in some sense, close the book because... This story, to me, ties the five chapters together in an elegant way. And so I hoped we could end this segment with your telling of it about the geometer Marjorie Rice. Yeah, um, Marjorie Rice's story is one of my favorites. Um, I first learned about her when I was just starting to teach math. Um, And I think her story really spoke to me as a woman doing math um, and as, as a as a woman. So I, I majored in math as an undergrad, and then I went into teaching, um, which I think is a rather expected path for a, a woman to, to tread in math. Um, a lot of, I mean, going into teaching for me, it was, I'd always wanted to be a teacher. I love working with children and I, I that's just my calling. Um, but, but in math, it's sort of like, you know, if you major in math, maybe you could do something better with your life than be a teacher, right? You know, you could maybe make some more money doing something else or, but, you know, um, Anyway, Marjorie Rice's story spoke to me because, as, as I'll tell it, she, she was a woman who, who got into math through her family um, and through her children, and then, but then also managed to do some pretty remarkable things um, and, and was, was, I think, you know, from the outside looks like a very unexpected mathematician. Um, but but from the, when you think about her story, really, you can see how, how you know, her love of math um, made her a very expected mathematician, right? It's, it's when, when people... When people do math that they love with a problem that they think is important, they are able to do amazing things, no matter who they are. Um, so I, I'm going to read a little excerpt from the book of her story. Um, Please. There we go. Marjorie Rice had an unremarkable childhood. She was born in Florida in 1923. As a high school student, she was tracked into a training program for secretaries. For a few years, she worked in a laundry and a printing office. Then, at the age of 22, she married her husband, Gilbert. Like many women of her time, Rice spent the next 30 years caring for her family. She took their five children to school and the library. She made breakfast, lunch, and dinner for her family in their sunny San Diego kitchen with pea green appliances. 
If preparing meals was all she had done in that cheerful kitchen, Rice's life might have gone on just as it had started, full of friends, home, and family. Happy, but unremarkable. But in 1975, at her kitchen table, Rice did something completely different, something remarkable. She made a mathematical discovery that mathematicians had neither seen nor anticipated before. Rice discovered a new type of pentagon that could tile flat space. By 1977, she had discovered three more. This may not sound important, but in doing so, Rice blew open a branch of mathematics that professional mathematicians had previously considered closed and inspired a chain of mathematical research that was resolved only in 2017. The question of which polygons can be used like tiles to cover a flat space has puzzled mathematicians for thousands of years. Mathematicians call questions of this sort problems of tiling the plane. It's pretty easy to see how some polygons tile the plane. You could probably come up with a good list of polygonal tiles if you tried right now. All triangles and quadrilaterals, three and four-sided shapes, tile the plane, no matter how irregular their side lengths and angle sizes. That is, you could cover a floor with copies of the same triangle or quadrilateral and leave no gaps. But it's not so obvious whether and how you can tile five-sided polygons, also known as pentagons. Take convex pentagons, for instance, pentagons whose angles are all less than 180 degrees. Pentagons are tricky to use as tiles. This is in part because a regular pentagon, the most basic pentagon with all equal sides and angles, does not tile the plane. The pentagon shaped like a house with a square base and a triangle top does, but it's clear that not all pentagons tile the plane. Are there just a handful of pentagons that tile? And how would you ever know that you'd found them all? There are infinitely many pentagons. You could be lured into thinking you'd found them all simply because of a lack of imagination. But a sneaky tiling pentagon could still be hiding from you. This is precisely what happened to Johns Hopkins University mathematician Richard Brandon Kirshner in 1967. Kirshner published a paper in the prestigious American Mathematical Monthly claiming that he had found all possible categories of convex pentagon tiles. Kirshner's findings made a big splash in the world of mathematics, so big that one of the most widely read mathematical writers of the time, Martin Gardner, wrote about them in his famous Scientific American column. Gardner's column traveled to schools, offices, libraries, and in Rice's case, kitchen tables all over the country, sharing the good news. Finally, a mathematician had found all of the convex pentagons that could tile the plane. But Kirshner was wrong. He hadn't found all of the convex pentagons that tiled the plane, not by a long shot. Kirshner said that there were eight types of tiling convex pentagons. Mathematicians now know that there are 15. And it was Marjorie Rice who first proved him wrong, sitting at her kitchen table in the glow of those pea green appliances. Spurred by an aesthetic appreciation of tiles and a competitive curiosity, Rice began to noodle around, looking for a new convex pentagon that tiled. She had no formal mathematical education, so she developed her own notation to keep track of the complex mathematical work she was doing. After a few months, Rice had found a new convex pentagonal tiling of her own. That's no time at all in the world of mathematical discoveries, especially those that refute published work done by professionals. She sent her work to Martin Gardner. Martin Gardner must have gotten many letters from readers with new mathematical discoveries over his years at Scientific American. Plenty of those were probably not worth taking seriously. Gardner didn't understand what Rice had sent him. He couldn't make heads or tails of her invented mathematical notation. That alone might have led another mathematician to toss Rice's work in the trash. 
but Gardner didn't do that. He kept an open mind and sent it to a real tiling expert who he thought might understand it, mathematician Doris Schatzschneider. Schatzschneider saw the import of what Rice had done. Together, they presented Rice's pentagons to the world. They showed everyone who cared that mathematicians weren't finished with tiling pentagons. They still had much more work to do. Rice and Schatzschneider developed one of the richest, but also least likely, professional relationships the field of mathematics has ever seen. Altogether, Rice would find four more categories of pentagons that tile the plane. Rice faced many barriers to becoming a mathematician. Lack of education, sexist expectations for what counts as women's work, and bias in the mathematical community against work that lacks the trappings of formal mathematics are just a few. And yet, with persistence and help from a few generous, open-minded mathematical insiders, Rice made her way in. Who knows what the world would believe about pentagonal tilings if she hadn't? An earth-shaking discovery? No. A solution to a problem with wide-ranging applications? Also no. But it's a beautiful piece of math. Her tilings show intuition. Her methods reflect the interconnection of algebra and geometry. Her conceptions are abstract. And undoubtedly, her work is surprising. Even more importantly, this beautiful piece of math had the power to change Rice's life. If changing someone's life in this way is not a superpower, I don't know what is. So there you go. And you've wrapped us all the way back to the title of your book. Thank you. (laughs) On purpose. (laughs) It's an excellent place to close. So let me ask a a handful of questions as as a winding down. Your book surveys many societal roles that mathematics plays. And one important one is, of course, education. Do you want to comment briefly on your dedication in the book? Yeah, um, I I dedicate the book to uh, my teachers who also include my students. Um, I wouldn't be where I am today without my teachers, Um, especially, I think I, I mentioned one who really changed the course of my life. I would have dropped out of math had it not been for a professor who told me not to. Um, but also doing math with children has been eye-opening for me. If if you are a mathematician and you've never truly listened to children as they make sense of math, even math that may seem very simple to you, then then you're really missing out on one of the joys of life. Um, children see some of the most inspiring things in even the most mundane mathematics. So I highly recommend it. And as another question, I often try to develop a sense to myself of what a book is doing, and I'm often wrong. So while I know this term has, is uh, somewhat politically laden, I mean it without any value uh, attachments to it, is this a book of critical theory applied to the practice and the culture and the popular understanding of mathematics? Yeah, so, so I take this question as sort of getting at like the very, a very important question of, of what is the ideology behind the approach I take in this book? Um, so I, I have been, um, I've learned a lot and have been inspired by um, people who are working intentionally to build a critical theory, um, especially of math education. And two people I'll mention in particular are Dr. Danny Martin and Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez, um, who are trying to outline a, like a coherent theory of math um, that, that rehumanizes math, that brings it back to the voices of the people. Um, and is critical of the power structures that have made math and math education what it is today. Um, I would say this book is is mainly a book of math problems and the problems with them, um, looking in particular at power issues. Um, so, so I'm getting at a series of math problems that I think should be analyzed critically. Um, I, I'm also, though, just trying to help people who aren't mathematicians get a window into what's going on. 
Um, so, so this book is written um, in large part for people who have felt that they don't have power in math or with math, um, and to, to help people see why they might feel that way. Um, why do you feel like you're not a math person? Um, and why do you feel like anytime math is wielded as an argument, um, as a tool in an argument, you feel like you, you don't have anything to contribute there? Um, so, so I think that's a big, a big point of the book. Um, is to do that. I'm not trying to construct a new theory of mathematics or the power relationships in it, um, but but I, I do hope that, so, so I would say this book is more a book about the trees than it is about the forest. Um, there, there are a lot of other people who are doing a lot of work on, on talking about that forest, um, and I hope that this uh, book helps as, as we attempt to, to do that work, um, which I see as really important work to try to make math better. Thank you. So, um, the traditional question I like to ask uh, is, if you would recommend another piece of scholarship or media that you think makes a good companion to yours? Yeah, so I have, I have a, a lot of things that I think are great. I mean, like I just said, this is a book of trees. Um, any of these trees in this book, you should go and learn more about that tree. Um, and there's a, a long list of references in the back of the book um, that, like, you know, that I'm writing about other people's amazing work in this book and trying to, you know, put it together in a way that I hope is interesting. So, so if you, if you take any inspiration from this, like go and read and learn more, um, a few that I'll call out. Um, so, so one, I just mentioned the work of, um, Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez. Um, she's a, a really important mathematics education scholar working on a program of rehumanizing mathematics, which I think is, um, that it shouldn't, shouldn't sound too radical to folks that math is something that people do. Um, and, and we should try to bring the people back into the math, especially the math that we show to kids. Um, so anything by her, I think, is amazing to read. Um, any of the models made by Nikki Case are really cool to look at. Um, Case has a lot of different fun models and games online that get at connections between math and the social sciences. Um, I really love them. I recommend them highly. Um, and then another, another thing that's going on right now that's, that's sort of live right now is a, a web series um, of online lectures. Um, called Talking Math with Your Friends that might be for your, you know, your adults and more mathematically inclined folks. Um, that, that it's a series, a, a weekly series of lectures happening right now that you can look up um, that is, um, each, each is a topic of like either pure math or applied math and trying to make it more interesting for your friends who, who maybe don't think they like math. And to wrap uh, with the traditional closing question of the New Books Network, what are you working on now? Right now, I'm trying to finish my dissertation, <laughs> so hopefully that thing will be done by December, and then I can be on with my life. Um, but I'm also looking for for other projects, sort of like similar to this this what I wrote in this book. And I don't have anything specific right now, but but I'm you know I'm definitely I'm definitely looking for new opportunities um, to talk about math and and uh, the power in it. And you have two previous books, I noticed when uh, looking at the at the, mm -hmm. at the author description in your book. Do you want to say a word about those? Yeah. So these are um, two books that are for kids. They are called This Is Not a Math Book and This Is Not Another Math Book. Um, spoiler, they are math books. So, sorry. <laughs> um, but they're, they're activity books for children. I'd say they're, they're best for ages maybe 7 to 12 um, that get at connections between math and art. So, um, and the way that they, you know, it's not a math book is that you, you can do these activities and think you're doing art, um, and not think you're doing math, but really you are, um, getting at some of the most interesting ideas in math. So, so I, I, I love them. I, I wrote them, um, so I wrote the first one at least while I was teaching third grade and there's a lot of love for my third graders in that book and, and other teachers who I've uh, worked with. 
Cool. Thanks very much. So I've been talking with Anna Weltman, author of Supermath, The Power of Numbers for Good and Evil by Johns Hopkins University Press, published this year, 2020. Anna, thank you so much for joining me on New Books in Mathematics. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.